I'm Andrew Blumenfeld, and this is Money in Politics. A topic I harp on a lot is viability. It's a term that's recently sort of been reincarnated as electability in the context of the 2020 presidential election. But unlike in a presidential campaign, most campaigns receive very little attention. So the question of their viability or their electability ends up boiling down often to just one thing, and that's money. Does the candidate have the necessary funds to mount a competitive campaign? But it's not just about money, of course. There are other factors at play. Who has the strongest community ties? Who has served in prior elected offices or earned the right individual or institutional endorsement, et cetera? And of course, all of those things are also pretty tightly bound to money. And collectively, these evaluations of viability can have a really huge impact on races. Most dramatically, they can even shape the landscape of the candidate field itself. This is one of the reasons I think it's an issue that's worth examining from so many angles, and it's one of the reasons I harp on the topic a lot, because in some ways it can be thought of as the anti-democratic portion of this democratic process. That is, the question of who is considered viable or most viable can sometimes have the effect of pushing certain candidates into a race and pushing other candidates to drop out of one. And that's long before a voter has ever even seen a ballot. This topic was top of mind for me recently when I saw what seemed to be a phenomenal candidate running for U.S. Senate in Montana. Her name is Cora Newman, drop out of her race. And she did that pretty recently and also pretty immediately after Governor Steve Bullock of Montana announced, after lots of promises to the contrary, that he would be running. From what I could tell, Cora had put together an impressive operation, so I really wanted to better understand more. To get that understanding and to dig into this topic of viability further, I spoke with Alex Obolensky, who has a background working in Democratic campaign finance, but most recently was Cora Newman's finance director for her campaign for U.S. Senate. But first, let's hear a message from our sponsor. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, CallTime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Alex. I'm really excited to be talking with you. If you want to just kick us off, actually, by giving us a quick introduction about who you are, what you do, what your past roles have been in campaign finance. We'd love to just hear a little bit about your background. Absolutely. Very happy to be with you, Andrew. So I'm Alex Oblensky. I'm a fundraiser and political operative for candidates and members of Congress. In the past, I've worked as finance director for a candidate who flipped the red to blue house seat, an incumbent frontline member, most recently for a woman who was running for a seat in the Senate from up here in Montana, along with a kind of a number of other jobs. Great. Well, actually, I want to start with your most recent role with the candidate from Montana running for U.S. Senate, Cora Newman, I believe is her name. Is that right? Mm -hmm. The reason why I wanted to chat with you about that role and also just other roles that you've had in campaign finance, but that one in particular stuck out to me because I am always fascinated by how money in politics is thought of as a barometer of viability and how that barometer is kind of evaluated differently depending on the candidate, depending on the race. It sort of can be a moving target. And so can you first just, for those who are unaware of the dynamics of that race, help us understand what transpired there, that race has come to an end. Can you kind of just explain to us with the background there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Cora Newman's a public health expert from Montana originally decided to get in the race because there wasn't really a super strong field at the time. Up here in Montana for this U.S. Senate seat, there's a qualified woman running for the House, obviously different race. But throughout the background of that entire race was the ongoing narrative around Governor Bullock, who was the sitting governor of Montana and had launched a presidential campaign earlier in that year. He eventually ended that campaign, dropped out, said he didn't want to run for Senate. He had said that he's only ever been an executive. He's never been a legislator. He had no interest in that. But he ended up getting in, in part due to some pretty aggressive lobbying from folks in D.C., but also because I think his family got on board and some of the other kind of roadblocks to him staying out went away. So we dropped out and endorsed Governor Bullock because it just wasn't really a viable race for us at that point. And Cora was in it to take the seat back and not for any sort of vanity project or anything like that. Sure. And you all were doing really impressive things, right? I mean, I I think you raised a half a million dollars or so, a really top-notch operation. So I guess one of the things that just occurs to me when I see something like that is that despite all of this progress and obvious support from those that are putting their resources behind a candidate, that there are other considerations, sort of powers that be, that may be thinking differently about who is and is not viable. How did you all think about that in even the initial stage of deciding to run, getting in in the first place? Was this something that you expected all along, or was this something that took you by surprise? I wouldn't say that we expected it. In fact, you know, I think that up until the last couple of weeks, before the governor decided to get in the race, I think our thinking on it was that it probably wasn't going to happen. He had repeated over and over again, the governor's opinion hasn't changed. And he had been like a little bit more explicit than other folks that turned around and ran for Senate. Like I'm thinking like John Hickenlooper, for example, he always kind of left the door cracked a little bit, whereas the governor seemed to be a little bit firmer against it. But yeah, we were able to put up good numbers, raise the most ever for a Democratic statewide challenger in the history of Montana in a quarter for our first quarter. But there was always kind of this looming shadow, right? Because folks knew that if Governor Bullock ran, it was going to immediately change the dynamics of the race. So while we didn't expect it, we knew it was going to affect what we did. It made it so that we needed to have a really good answer on why we were viable what the understanding on the ground was about Governor Bullock's situation, which was that he wasn't probably going to run. Obviously, that turned out not to be the case, but it definitely shaped the contours. So even if we didn't expect it to actually happen, we knew that it was going to affect how things played out. And correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that was happening all the while you're raising all this money and you're putting together this operation, you have this really strong candidate, is that even well before the governor jumped in, The question of whether or not this was a competitive seat was sort of left open by the public narrative. It was not whether or not it was going to be Governor Bullock or Cora Newman who were making the seat competitive. The sort of assumption baked into a lot of the media and, again, sort of the institutional powers that be in describing the landscape in 2020 was either Governor Bullock would get in this and put it on the map as a battleground or if he wasn't going to do that, it wouldn't be a competitive seat. First of all, is that right? Is my read on that correct? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. It's a fair characterization of what was happening, but it didn't strike me as very fair analysis of reality. (laughs) Why do you think that that was the analysis, despite all of the progress you all were making? 
Well, I think that there are, you know, a couple of things at play there, right? I think that one is not just in politics, but in everything, right? You always have more faith in something that you know and that people know. So Governor Bullock was a known quantity, right? He's the most popular politician in the state. He's the sitting governor. He's one of the most well-known politicians in the state, if not the most well-known. He was a known quantity to national Democrats as he was currently running for president. So there are, he had a bunch of things working in his favor in terms of making sure that he was kind of in the zeitgeist and thought well of. I do think that there was also a little bit of politics at play there, right? Like you were talking about the powers that be. And I, I want to be careful because I don't think that it was like Governor Bullock was forced to run. It was his decision at the end of the day. But I do think that part of the thinking from folks in D.C. is that if the media says that this is off the table unless Governor Bullock runs, we are not going to help push Cora's candidacy in terms of national media coverage that you might have expected given the record-breaking numbers we were putting up. I think that that further incentivizes the governor to run, right? Because at the end of the day, the governor wants to govern and impact people's lives in a positive direction. And so saying the seat's off the map unless you do it is a much stronger argument than saying, we have two good candidates. We think you're slightly better or just better. You should do it. And he's like, well, we got good candidates. So, you know, that decreases the incentive for him to throw his hat in the ring. Let's take a step back and talk also about your roles beyond just most recently serving as the finance director for this U.S. Senate campaign. In that instance, we're talking about a female who's running for an open seat. And you've also worked with a male candidate who is an incumbent running for re-election. There's quite a spectrum there. And I'm curious about whether or not you think that there's any difference in the way that we measure viability when we think about candidates through the lens of all of the different variables there, gender, race, geography, incumbency. How does viability sort of change when we think about it through those different lenses? Yeah, I think there's definitely, maybe it's not a different ball game, but it's definitely playing the same game with a different team or something like that, if that makes sense. So with an incumbent, you don't necessarily need to demonstrate viability. You've won once, right? Like, especially if you're not facing a primary on your side, you're the horse for the Democratic Party. It's not so much if you can win, it's we need you to win because you're our chance to keep this seat. And that definitely changes it. It also gives you access to kind of a whole other host of characters because you, you're thinking more about how the policy impacts the district and how you can create synergies between the good actions that people are taking and using that to earn media and drive fundraising and do all that sort of stuff. I do think that the gender question is also a big one, right? I think that for the most part, male candidates have access to kind of a deeper fundraising bench than many female candidates do. I think most of the literature bears that out. That's not to say that if you just have a really strong candidate, I worked for a Lizzie Fletcher down in Texas 7 who flipped a seat down there and had an incredible personal network. So it's not always the case. But as a rule, I think that generally male candidates have access to a deeper bench, which definitely changes things. And I think that the way you talk about viability, I think we see this in the presidential election this cycle, right, is that it's a harder argument to make for a woman to establish herself as viable, especially in a district or a race like the presidency where there's never been a female incumbent. It requires a bit more imagination on the part of donors and voters and the press to really see a woman in that role, which I think it's not necessarily like a massive hurdle to overcome, but maybe it decreases your conversion rate by 5 to 10%. And when you're a challenger running against an incumbent or even an open seat, every percentage point matters because that that's dollars that you can put in the bank or that you can't. 
And it strikes me that from this conversation, it's not just the actual hard dollars, although I take the point that certainly even just the direct conversion rate is probably reduced for someone who has to overcome just yet another hurdle when talking to donors, when talking to voters, but that there are these other structural things that happen as well, that even just the way we think about, okay, an incumbent, the bar is much lower, frankly, right? You don't have to necessarily prove, I think, to use your words, that you are definitely going to win. It's just that you basically have to win (laughs) in order for us to keep the seat. And so you'll get the institutional support just by virtue of that. And when we live in a world where incumbents are more often men than women, you just right there have have a quite a structural difference. And I wonder also about the impression that you get from all the different kinds of campaigns that you've worked on and that you've observed This idea of stepping aside even is sort of an interesting one, that if the factors all come together, the money, the endorsements, the institutional pressure around candidate A, that candidate B is supposed to, in some instances, just look at that and say, you know what, the best thing for the party, the best thing for this seat is that I step aside and get behind candidate A. It's quite a noble and thoughtful thing to do. I just wonder from your experience, is it something that is so common? Is is what Cora did so instantaneously running a great campaign and then watching from her judgment that the best thing to do was to get behind the governor and, and so quickly doing that? Is that common? I don't think it's common. I think this is something of a unique situation given the underlying dynamics. I think that that's borne out by how most of the other folks that were in our primary behaved. Like you had Mayor Wilmot Collins drop out basically the same day we did a couple hours later. A couple of the other folks dropped out. I think there's maybe one or two candidates that are still left in the primary. And I do think that, you know, if this were just private citizen versus private citizen, that the landscape would look significantly different. But the situation is kind of unique. And I think that there are certain moments, again, not to keep harping on the the presidential race this cycle, but it is kind of what most people, I think, are their touchdown for politics, right? You saw Klobuchar, Buttigieg drop out and endorse Biden right before Super Tuesday, which did significantly alter kind of the landscape of the race. I don't think that maybe the same dynamics are the case here. But as a fundraiser, you're always faced with the struggle that there's only so much money out there for all the candidates across the country, but also for, you know, that have an interest in the Montana Senate race and think this is a compelling case and want to give money here. So us staying in the race and raising money for the primary and going and spending money for the primary, while it would probably be maybe not minimal, but not have a huge impact, it would, to some extent, reduce our odds of taking the seat in November. If we're contesting the the primary all the way till June, which is a very late primary in Montana, you already have a limited window to run in the general if you're fighting in the primary. And maybe you land some body blows on your opponent, which is what you'd be trying to do in order to win the primary, that actually reduces the candidate's viability in the general. So I think that this is a special case, but some of those circumstances apply, I think, universally. And let's talk a little bit more about those cases, because there does seem to be, as you've just described, obvious upside to that approach, right, is that, and you you cited a few examples in the presidential, in your own race in Montana. I also, it comes to mind that it was a while ago now, but I believe in Colorado when Hickenlooper jumped in, there was some of that that happened pretty immediately too. And by, I believe, male candidates, so male and female candidates, we've seen that occur this cycle. The upsides are, are sort of the ones you just described. Are there any downsides to this system? Do you think that voters are best served by a system where there is this kind of pre-voter screening that happens? There's this external pressure 
pressure. There's these internal factors. And long before a voter ever sees a ballot or gets a commercial or sees a piece of mail, a lot of decisions have been made for them. What are the possible drawbacks of that system or or are there not many? Well, I think there certainly could be some drawbacks to that, right? I think that it's very difficult to see the future. Obviously, it's mostly impossible. I know that when we jumped into this race, we did not expect a global pandemic to be fundamentally reshaping not only the political landscape, but also even how you raise money nowadays. And I do think that whenever you restrict your decision-making process to a smaller group of people, there's always the risk of groupthink and people getting set in their ways and not accounting for the full degree of variability. There are certain instances where I don't think it's very helpful to have overt intervention in situations like this. Like, in Texas 7 last cycle, the DCCC dropped oppo research on one of the candidates in the primary running against. I don't think that would have really changed the dynamics of the race at all. But I don't think it was really good because it brought kind of a tenor of, like you were talking about, you know, voters being denied having a fair choice in the matter because the landscape was being shifted by internal party machinations. So to be fair, the strongest candidate won that primary and went on to flip the seat. So I think that, you know, just like it folks kind of looking in maybe from D.C. or from state parties, relying mostly on polling data to make these sorts of decisions should have some degree of modesty about what they can actually foresee. And I think that folks on the outside in the field should also have the same degree of modesty, right? Like, it may feel different to you, but you might only be talking to people that like your candidate. And maybe the landscape is a little different. At the end of the day, I think it's a little bit of a moot point because... You know, we can't run every candidate and expect to have the party do well and, you know, and have all the qualities that we need in order to to win in seats like Montana. It'll be a competitive race, but it will be a hard race. And so making sure that we're able to put our best foot forward and unify in order to win, I think at the end of the day is also really important, at least to all the voters that vote in the Democratic primary and who consider themselves Democrats or Democratic-leaning independents as well. Yeah. And I think it's a wise reminder for humility when when trying to see into the future, no doubt. And yet I also can't help but wonder, as I'm sure is true in the case of you and and the whole core team, which is if all the effort and work and persuasion and institutional powers and if all of that same coalescing had decided to coalesce around a strong woman who was already deeply connected to this state and already persuaded, had jumped all in, had spent months and months and months developing an operation and building up resources, you are left wondering, gosh, if all of all of that work that was done just to convince the governor to jump in in the first instance had just been put behind the strong candidate already in the field, do you change outcomes in that way versus do you try and just jump with the person who you feel is the quote unquote safer choice? But I guess to your point, that's unknowable. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's to a certain degree unknowable. I think one thing that would be certain is that if the orientation of kind of the lobbying had shifted towards supporting us as opposed to supporting someone else, number one, that definitely would have shifted the landscape. And number two, it would have really upset our primary opponents. (laughs) So you would be dealing with this question in just a different direction. So you're always going to kind of have this question of like, who is the establishment candidate, right? And to the extent that there is an establishment, which I think is something of an open question, and I don't think it exists in all cases, you know, that also has knock-on effects in the other way, where it's like, oh, you're you're the choice of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. You see that these Republicans are already running attack ads against Bullock on that, which brings its own kind of negative dynamics as well as the positive advantages of having that sort of insider validation. Yeah, that's fair. 
I actually want to last turn to something that you mentioned briefly about not being able to foresee, for instance, a pandemic. Well, here we are. And I know that race wound down just sort of as this pandemic was really exploding here in the United States. I'm curious about how, as a fundraiser with a lot of experience, but obviously none of us have fundraised during a pandemic, how are you thinking about it now? How are you planning on approaching fundraising in this new environment in your next fundraising role? Yeah, well, I, I got to say off the top, if I was still working with Cora, I'd probably be talking about her public health expertise a lot since it seems increasingly relevant, especially given she worked on Ebola in West Africa. But more generally, I think that the long-term implications of what this will do for fundraising titles for the cycle, all that sort of stuff. I think the jury's still out on that. I think we have to see kind of what the overall economy goes like over the, the rest of the year. But it's clearly having massive discrete impacts, right? If I had like a fully built-out finance plan right now, I think I'd probably be cutting my events line item pretty significantly, if not to zero. I think you'll see folks, and I think events are a really important part of a healthy finance plan. So I think that you'll see a lot of effort being put into kind of the same thing they're doing on the organizing front, you know, digitizing it, whether that's Zoom teleconference town halls and happy hours, or if it's more of conference calls to get people together and to try and create that sort of like fundraising community that I think events kind of provide a unique place for in a finance plan. I think that there will be a lot of creativity on that front. I think that there'll be creativity on that front and there'll be like a real fundamental return to basics, which is the bread and butter of any finance plan. It's going to be your call time bucket. 30 to 40% of your money is probably coming from there. And I think that that will probably creep upwards because if you don't have to go to events, if you don't spend a lot of time driving around to meetings, not only does that mean that call time is more important, it means you have more time for call time. So I think that you'll see that. I'm surprised. I've heard mixed messages about kind of what your more classic digital fundraising, emails, direct-to-donate stuff is doing. For some people, I hear it's dropping off. But for some other consultants I'm talking to, it's holding steady or even improving in some areas. I imagine those are folks that have kind of clear access points to talk in a cogent, meaningful way about the current crisis. And for example, the Republican senators that were profiteering off the crisis behind closed doors. I think that there is still going to be ways to mobilize people that care a lot about good governance and making sure that we have responsible leadership. But we were talking about the charitable goods market earlier, that the total pool of money is probably going to shrink a little bit and people have to get creative and execute well on fundamentals to make sure they can keep pace. Yeah, I think it's one of these things we're trying to pay very close attention to and get as much feedback from folks as we can because it is evolving so quickly. So it's good to hear from someone who has such deep expertise on it. And I think people appreciate that. And thank you so much for being so gracious with your time and for sharing a little bit of behind the scenes of the Cora campaign and your take on viability and how it interacts with money and politics. I think it's a topic that people think about a lot. It's certainly one we talk about a lot. So it's really been helpful to get your take on it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's certainly a very important conversation. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the CallTime AI blog at www.calltime.ai. And follow us on Twitter at CallTime AI.